0: Log Talk Radio. by Hospice, brought to you in coordination with Marcel Reed and the Whistleblower Summit and our producer, Marty Oakley. This year we have been focusing on various aspects of hospice and pointing out that in most cases it is no longer the compassionate foundation that it was intended to be. Dame Cicely Saunders created hospice in 1967 for the actively dying and it was to minimize pain, but that is not what is happening. We talked earlier this year about how the qualifications to enroll have been watered down to the point that people who are not in an active state of dying are being enrolled, such as somebody who goes to the hospital three times in a year or needs assistance to eat, dress, or becomes incontinent, or maybe they have dementia or a UTI that causes many of these issues and it just goes untreated. And as for minimizing pain, That is not what is happening in most hospices. They are literally intentionally drugging people into a coma, and for the reason is to end their life. I helplessly watched this happen to my mom, as many of you have witnessed. Hospice was never meant to drug someone into a coma and prematurely hasten their death with drugs, starvation, and dehydration. But they are. So it is no longer for the actively dying and they are not minimizing pain. And they are trying to enroll people sooner. Many of you have seen the cold side of hospice while your loved one died in a horrible premature death at their hands, while some may have had a positive experience. It's not my intention to sway your belief on that. My point is to make sure that you know what can happen and mistakenly we often believe that someone in the medical field If they tell us something, they tell it to us because they care and they're really trying to help us. Often it can be to the detriment of our own life or that of our loved one. My goal is to give you information and to say over and over again, verify before accepting. Knowledge is power. Research what you're being told. It may be the difference between life and death. Another segment that we had was how hospice often coerces enrollment even though the individual might have six, eight, 10 months longer or two years longer if they didn't enroll. We then discussed CPAPs, BiPAPs, and ventilators. And because I believe in verifying for yourself, check out vitus.com for hospice qualifications. Also, check out Michelle young book Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, for more information and proof of what we've talked about these past three segments. And before I introduce our guest tonight, I want to point out one more resource, HaloVoice.org, which has excellent information and a life-affirming proxy medical document. It's called a LAMP that you can use to protect you or your loved one. They have a helpline, Eight 888-221-4256 Eight eight two two one four two five six. 4256 if you need to speak to someone. Tonight, we will discuss the drugs that are given to our loved ones with no consent or knowledge about what that drug will do once it's administered. We'll also talk about do not resuscitate, the Pulse, versus medical power of attorney forms. I am honored to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. William Toffler and I think you'll hear in his biography that he is just the kind of doctor we would all want to take care of us and our loved one, but I don't believe many like him exist. Dr. William Toppler is a co-founder, and he is the National Director of Physicians for Compassionate Care Education Foundation, which promotes compassionate care for severely ill patients without sanctioning or assisting their suicide. Their physicians affirm an ethic-based principle that all human life is inherently of value and the physician's role is to heal illness, alleviate suffering, and provide comfort for the sick and dying. I find their values and principles comforting. And as many know, Oregon was the first state to adopt assisted suicide, and Dr. Toffler, among others, opposed this bill as far back as 1994. He was also a member of the Physicians Resource Council at Focus on the Family for over 20 years, and he serves as a board member on Euthanasia Prevention Coalition on the USA side. They have a Canada side and USA, and they expose the truth about euthanasia. Dr. Toffler, a professor emeritus of family medicine at Oregon Health and Science University, He taught for 34 years, and he has a wide scope of practice ranging from delivering babies to geriatric and palliative care. He is committed to defending the longstanding medical prohibition against doing harm and is frequently invited to speak about these and other medical ethical issues at national and international conferences. When it comes to honoring the sanctity of life for all, he has been persistent in following through. He has been interviewed on television and radio, including NPR, 60 Minutes, Good Morning America, as well as international media in Canada, Australia, United Kingdom, and Japan. And on a personal note, he is a dad to seven children and 24 grandchildren. So I think it's safe to say he's pretty much seen it all. And tonight he is going to share his vast experience with us, and give us some very helpful information. So, Dr. Toffler, I'd like to turn the program over to you at this time.
1: Well, you know, Marcia, thank you very much for that uh, warm introduction. Can you hear me fine?
0: I can hear you just fine, sir. Oh,
1: great. All right. Well, and and I, I like the quip when we talk about the, I've been blessed with 24 grandchildren, and I'm doing my best to support the Ponzi scheme of Medicare and Social Security for all the Younger people who might be listening. So, yeah. uh, you know, the uh, the reality is that we we live in a in a world where a utilitarian model has taken over with respect to caring for patients, and so um, all the issues that you just mentioned, Marcia, ranging from um, do not resuscitate to pulse forms. These are forms that were started here in Oregon in the '90s, late '90s, ninety-five to 2000 and then they've taken over so virtually every state has some sort of a way to in a single page indicate that you don't want these things done or those things done and we can talk about those in a while but it's very much a pattern of of behavior in the medical establishment of being so clear about um, your wishes and being so sure that we don't do anything more that you know it's changed from maybe a. In the past, doing too much for people, like when I was a medical student back in the 70s, that I would be the youngest person. I'd get there with a respirator having run through the hospital, and I'd be the one to get up on the bed and be um, doing CPR, doing chest percussions or chest uh, you know, massage for the heart, essentially, where you pump blood by pushing on the chest cavity. And that was true even if the person was overwhelmingly on the way out in terms of their overall picture of disease and so we treated everybody the same so we've gone from that to now you have to fight for what you want done to you where I have to get prior authorizations for an MRI for a CAT scan for heaven's sake, I had to get prior authorization for crutches when I had a broken leg I mean it's just, you you have to fight for things so I think many people, because of these national cases, have a fear of, of of dying and being trapped alive on a respirator like some of the national or international cases um, make. But at the same time, that's really not the problem today. Today, we're only too happy as a medical establishment to not do things to people. And and so even when something would be useful, you you're having to get – uh, authorization for it. And in some cases, that authorization is denied even when it would be helpful. And there are famous cases of that now in Oregon, which is terribly dangerous when you have assisted suicide that is 100% covered, and yet the care to perhaps help you live longer with your cancer is denied because it's too expensive. In other words, it's too expensive. You're not worth that care. And you literally have so much of Medicare is being wasted by people who are armies of people trying to deny care with armies of people trying to get them to agree to proceed with the care. There's a famous case here in Oregon. Her name is Barbara Wagner and God rest her soul. She had a school bus driver in her history repertoire and she was retired and she had cancer. Her oncologist got the cancer controlled. The cancer recurred some years later. He recommended a drug called Tarceva Tarceva wouldn't cure the cancer, but it would give a higher probability, 46% increased chance that she'd be alive in a year. And so the Oregon health plan that was in charge of her health care wrote her a letter saying that they didn't approve the Tarceva because it was $4,000 a month, but they would approve 100% coverage for her pain management, including assisted suicide. So think of this concept that we're going to pay to have you kill yourself 100%, but we won't pay for you to have a drug that might cost $4,000 a month. And remember, I said it, it gives you an increased chance of being alive over, say, six months. And so we're not talking about $4,000 a month for the rest of, uh, you know, 30 years. You're talking about, you know, at best, maybe, maybe three months, six months, that she'd simply do better in that time period. And that's now been devalued. And in fact, they come up with these concepts called, if we give you this treatment, how many quality life years do you have, things called QALY, how many do you have left? And they compare one person who they judge by statistical analysis to have less time as being a, a lower priority than somebody who has, say, 20, 30, 40, or 50 qualities left, QALYs left, Ys. And so... Uh, this is a very terrible utilitarian model where we say certain lives are worth more than others,
0: and it's,
1: it, it's very dangerous. And, in, in fact, she didn't get the drug from the Oregon Health Plan. She did get it, the, the drug company itself. You know, often people think of them as being cold, harsh, uh, money-making institutions, but they, they, they gave it to her for free, and they will be willing, if she did well, to actually renew it after a year. And so you, you have more compassion with the pharmaceutical com- companies than you do with with the uh, with the institutions that you think that would be uh, trying to help you. You bought insurance; you would hope that it would be there, or your tax dollars paid for the healthcare coverage for your whole life, and you'd hope to take advantage of that. And this is a sad reality now. So, you know, we have a uh, now institutionalized not only in Oregon, but ten years later, Washington joined the fold. And by the way. That's actually a victory, because everybody predicted once one state embraced situational killing at the end of life, they all would just go one by one like dominoes. And they were very much wrong about that, because we were able to educate the public, um, the those of us who understood the, the dangers of assisted suicide, the cover-up of the real problems with assisted suicide. That is that, you know, the, there is no investigation into these things that are happening in Oregon, they have second and even third-hand reporting of assisted suicides, and the doctor is almost never there. I mean, they're there less than 15% of the time. 85% of the time, the doctor is not present when the person takes a massive overdose of deadly drugs. And and this is a, a sad reality. So they And if, if there is something askance, they don't have the resources, that is the Oregon Health Authority, to investigate what might have really happened. They also... Uh, don't feel like that's their charge at all. They're just simply tracking what people self-report. And then if that's not bad enough by itself, the only place I know of where medical records are actively destroyed is with assisted suicide, where the state gets these second- and third-hand reports. They collate the information just blindly without checking to see that there's any veracity to what's being said, and then they actively destroy the records. And if that's not bad enough, they also, the records are that they died of, uh, say, heart disease as opposed to they died of an overdose of assisted suicide. So we really don't know what's going on. And there are clearly cases that sometimes leak out despite the shroud of secrecy that are not at all reassuring, where someone actually actively helps somebody to die because they can't swallow the pill, but they won't say how. how do you help, if somebody can't swallow, how, how do you help them? And so that's the case of uh, somebody who had ALS on the coast of Oregon is the brother-in-law had to quote, help him to die and wouldn't say how was it a pillow that he used to smother him? Was it something right. that he, he stuck a, a tube down? I mean, this is the kind of thing, Marcia, that just is, is chilling or, you know, somebody stands to gain the insurance policy as a doctor. I've never, I've never asked a patient, gee, who's the beneficiary of your life insurance policy. Or worse, I wasn't like a private investigator and say, uh, do you think they have your best interests at heart? Um, you know, Can you trust your loved ones? I mean, these are things that were just not even in the realm of possibility. And then, you know, when you did the instruction, you talked about the motivation of the different people. At one time, hospice was very much, um, if not actively opposed to this, they didn't want to be a part of it because – being a part of it was essentially colluding with this whole paradigm of the solution to suffering is the end of the life of the and That's not what hospice is about. So they wouldn't even let hospice workers go into the house if somebody was doing assisted suicide. And that has changed. The culture has become desensitized. And so hospice mm-hmm. is now part of assisted suicide in some cases where a patient involves himself with that. And that, that's a sad corruption of, of hospice, and it's certainly a corruption of my profession, where I have to be careful about who do I send someone to. And this is not just an anecdotal; this is a this is this is the truth. There are heads of medical oncology, like at Providence Hospital, a Catholic hospital here in Portland, who are participating in assisted suicide. At the institution where I was for 20 34 years, Oregon Health and Science University, that one of the chief professors of medical oncology boasts that he's done more assisted suicides than anyone in the state. I heard him say that in testimony at the Oregon legislative committee hearing where they wanted to, he was pushing to have the word ingest that is taking an overdose be actually extended to meaning that you could give the drug, the deadly drug IV or rectally. so you're corrupting even the English language, let alone our profession. And so I I would never send a patient to such a doctor where he believes that some lives aren't worth living. And, you know, I I make the analogy sometimes. It's a little bit like someone who is a lawyer and they're defending you, uh, visualize that you've been accused of murder and the punishment in that state is, is capital punishment, death, uh, by the way, which often will use the exact same cocktail of drugs that we use for the so-called compassionate care of compassionate choices. But the lawyer defending you all of a sudden surprises you because he goes across the aisle and he, he now is actually working with the, 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 the prosecuting attorney to convict you. And you say, well, that, that's impossible. That's a conflict of interest, isn't it? Well, if you don't think that is, and I, I don't know how anybody could say it's not, But if you thought, well, that's okay, he could balance it, you know, and he'd just try to follow what's just, and he'd try to follow his conscience in either convicting you or not. He actually is the judge. He's deciding which lawyer is making the best argument. And if you don't think that being a lawyer for both sides and the judge of who's going to win is bad enough, he's also the executioner in a case that's a capital case. So it's an incredible role conflict that I would argue no lawyer would would ever think that this is a, a reasonable system. But somehow my colleagues who do assisted suicide think they can balance all those different roles in one person and do, do justice to uh, the care of a patient. And, it, and it's simply not true. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues that helped start Physicians for Compassionate Care more than 25 years ago basically had a patient come to him who had colorectal cancer. It wasn't optimal. And basically, the woman said, I'm not here for chemotherapy, radiation therapies. I don't, I don't want my hair falling out. I'm just here for the pills. I voted for assisted suicide, and I'm just here for the pills. And so the, the reality is that uh, uh, he, not being a vending machine kind of doctor, not believing that assisted suicide was health care, he, 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 he did some inquiries that said, you know what, Tell me about that. Tell me what you're thinking. And, and found out that she had a son in the police academy. Found out that, uh, you know, she would like to see him graduate. Don't you want to see him get married? She thought about it. She changed her mind about this uh, assisted suicide being the right thing for her. So she agreed to, to the chemotherapy and radiation therapy. And, and thankfully, the tumor just melted away. And, and uh, her hair did fall out. That one of her fears, but it grew back. And five years later, she saw him in a restaurant, and, and she thanked him for saving her life, that had he been one of those suicide doctors, one of the assisted suicide doctors, or the death doctors, as she put it, um, she wouldn't be there. And she was so thankful that he wasn't like that, that she was, he was able to value her life even when she wasn't valuing it. And it's now been over 20 years since she was asking for assisted suicide. Now, think of how many colleagues, and there are hundreds of them. Uh, Now, the the good news is that out of probably 14,000 or more doctors who are licensed in the state of Oregon, uh, there are only a couple hundred who are actually doing assisted suicide, who somehow think they can keep all these roles straight. So I want to share encouragement with your your listeners that, you know, it is possible to educate doctors to not be part of this, educate people in hospice not to be part of this, But you really do have to ask your doctor or your hospice worker where they stand on these things, because if they don't have a clear uh, stance on these things that my life is going to be valuable, whether I'm on hospice or not, my life's valuable whether I have a cancer or not, I I think you should find a different care provider, either a doctor or a hospice worker or whoever. You aren't safe in, in people's hands where they've compromised themselves and not realizing an inherent conflict of interest. I, I, I want to stop there and just let you uh, reflect on what I said, Marcia, because I know you and I are peas in a pot about many of these issues.
0: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and I wanted to ask you, you sort of brought this up because, you know, this lady made the conscious choice after somebody took the time to talk to her, that how many of, and it's kind of a rhetorical, but there are people that come and they get the drugs But then, ultimately, they don't take them. So they have a second thought about it later, and they wind up not taking them. And I'm for somebody making an educated decision on what they want to do with their bodies, right? You know, the one lady said, you know, I don't want to have chemo or radiation. But you talk to that person to determine whether this is really what they want. And if somebody really, really wants to commit suicide and you give them the drugs – but they don't follow through with it, and they really didn't want it, and maybe they were just depressed. You know, you don't know what somebody's circumstances are, and if they just come in and say, give me the drugs, and you give them without having any discussion, they could change their mind. But once you've got the drugs, they change their mind. Now, where do those drugs go? Or if that person changed their mind and somebody else gave them to them, and there's your slippery slope because you could talk a person with dementia or um, a disabled person, you could talk them into taking those drugs and maybe that is not what they want, and there's your slippery slope.
1: Oh, absolutely, and and there are over 100 prescriptions this past year. The report just came out last week um, that showed, in fact, it's this week I think it came out. It came out late this year, and it showed basically that there were more prescriptions written than ever, some over 300 of them, and only about uh, you know, 219 actually ingested the medication. And uh, uh, one patient ingested the medication but regained consciousness before dying uh, from the underlying illness, and therefore it's not countered as a death with dignity a death, But, you know, we don't know really about any of this in terms of how many people are like that. It's analogous to when somebody goes in the hospital with COVID and they die. Did they die with COVID or they die of COVID? And you see there was about a 50% discrepancy in the state of New York. Even in New York, they acknowledged that they were overcounting deaths from COVID, uh, driving fear. And this is, uh, this is horrible. Nobody knows what happens with these drugs. The Oregon Health Authority doesn't ask them to be turned back in. So you've got this cocktail of deadly drugs. And just as you said, uh, you can, quote, help somebody to die when they really don't know. Uh, they're, not, they're not able to make decisions for themselves. Uh, you could give them some of the drug and make them soporific, sleepy, and, and confused, and then uh, say, oh, they, they want to die. Or they may even say something confused like that. And so... It's dangerous when anyone, whether they're a doctor or a loved one, acts on just what somebody says at the moment. And I I think back to one time I was so sick with the flu. This is probably 25 years ago. And I I said my wife was there. I said, oh, gosh, I feel so bad. Just get a gun and shoot me. Well, you know, thank God my wife didn't take my verbiage, you know, (laughs) concretely. Because, of course, that's the way I felt. And feelings change. And everybody who takes care of depressed patients uh, knows this. And, by the way, that's the other issue. Uh, there's usually at most 5%. Sometimes there is 0% of people who get any kind of psychiatric consultation. And even when they do, one of the famous cases in Oregon that leaked out into the press because you'd never find it from the, the, the people who do the bean counting at the Oregon Health Authority, it leaks out in the press that Kate Cheney uh, – is a patient, her daughter erica she's a she's a survivor of the holocaust, and Erica, her daughter, went to one of my former colleagues, uh, a psychiatrist who who was doing an evaluation to see if she qualified for assisted suicide. well she wasn't imminently dying, but she was a confused person who uh, like our president, has some memory issues and and basically the the reality is um, she really wasn't clear that she was asking for it. She was more passive. And the, the, the psychiatrist formally said in a written evaluation, I, I'm not going to authorize this. I'm not going to prove this as a, with a psychiatric consultation because it's not clear who's really asking for it. Her daughter seems coercive. So what does, what does her daughter Erica do? She takes her to another doctor and that doctor is a psychologist, not a, a, a medical doctor in the sense of a psychiatrist, but, but a psychologist. He didn't use the word coercion, but he also refused to be a signature on assisted suicide for, for Kate. She goes to a third doctor, doctor shopping, and it's a Kaiser doctor who, who believes that she's a good candidate for assisted suicide. Now, think of the danger there. I mean, Kaiser is a, uh, a an interesting concept of the HMO, a closed system, where basically the less you do in a closed system, the more you make. Now, I'm not, I'm not throwing stones at Kaiser. I'm just talking about a conflict of interest. Kaiser does excellent care with lots of things, and it does a great job of, of health promotion and that, that sort of thing. On the other hand, when it comes to expensive things, you have to get the same authorization. If you want to go outside the system, you have to get a second opinion. But basically, to authorize assisted suicide to somebody who's in the Kaiser system is to say, I'm only going to have to spend at the time – for the deadly medication, and if I do even one test, like a CAT scan, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars. And so you see the conflict of interest. And, again, I'm not even saying that I think his name was Richardson, is the doctor who did this. I'm not accusing him of that. I'm just saying when you don't get the right answer from one doctor, you go to a different one until you get the answer you want. In this case, you get the answer you want, and we're talking about life and death. This is a horribly dangerous conflict of interest, and it's even more so in a capitated system, where you know there is an inherent conflict that when you do less, you make more, and that's did they uh, you know did they, they
0: do it? Did Kate? They did get, yeah. did um, Erica get the drugs?
1: Yeah, and what's more, she was she was very much uh, committed to what she'd done. She thought it was right, and she saw the doctors like. Linda Ganzini as being obstacles to getting the care that her mother needed. So you see but her mother want? even that? among families. Say again?
0: What did her mother want?
1: Well, again, it's hard to know. I mean, it's like if you right. ask uh, 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 certain leaders of the country something, and one day uh, they don't know what they said then, and they're, they're contradicting the themselves day. the next day. I mean, we're well, already seeing case. that in an a ne- in international level with somebody right. who doesn't have the same capacity that he had when he was um, 20 years younger. And again, I'm right. not being political here. I'm just saying
0: no, I you have to be blind, not... To see that, there was, um, in United Kingdom, there was a lady, an elderly lady, who had made the comment that if I ever got dementia, I don't want to live like that. Just kill me, you know, like you were saying with the flu. And she said she wanted to be euthanized if she ever got dementia. Well, she unfortunately came down with dementia, and they actually put something in her coffee or her tea to calm her down to make her sleepy, but when they went to give her the injection, she was alert enough and that she started screaming and saying, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. Her family held, and you may even be aware of this, this is just a couple of years ago, her family physically held her down while they injected her and murdered her. That's murder.
1: Yeah, it is, and, it, and it, it's what's so dangerous about these advanced directives is that people ought to have the right to change their mind. Uh, it's, it's just uh, it's mind-boggling. Like the people who claim to be pro-choice at the beginning of life are upset because some people change their mind after they take a chemical pill to abort their unborn baby um, to, to deprive it of the progesterone it needs, and they're unwilling to uh, acknowledge that they could take a lot of de- progesterone and overcome the blocking effect of the pill. And, and I often say, I thought we were pro-choice. I thought we were for women choosing to do what they want to do. I mean, if they wanted to choose, why would you be against them changing their mind? Are you so committed that they abort their unborn baby that you don't let the woman have a choice? I mean, it, to right. me it's astonishing. It, it really unmasks, I guess. Uh, I know what we're talking about at the end of life here, but I'm sort of saying it seems to be the same people often who are absolutely for choice, choice and dying, reproductive choice. And, and when somebody changes their mind, they're so committed to the sacrament of assisted suicide or euthanasia that, that they want to go through with it even when a person changes their mind. So I would say if, if someone listening to this takes anything away from this, do not put in writing that you don't want X or Y. And, and that's the other thing about this whole advanced directive thing. You know, I have people coming in because they're so fearful about these cases where somebody's, quote, trapped alive on a respirator that uh, that they, they, they want to be DNR, do not resuscitate. So I often say, you know, I, I don't think that's a good idea because it depends on the circumstances. And it'd be better to authorize someone who knows your mentality, knows your philosophy, knows your faith, who could make the decisions in the moment when there's one of 6,000 different scenarios. You can't, you can't outline those things in writing. And they say, no, I want to be DNR. So what you're saying is you, if you were choking on a piece of meat in a restaurant, you wouldn't want me to do a Heimlich maneuver. And he says, oh, no, I want that. Well, I said, well, be careful about labeling yourself, do not resuscitate, because that means that the EMTs coming can pull this up electronically, a statewide registry, see that you don't want things done, and they won't touch you because they're going to follow that, that edict, that order that you, you signed. And in some cases, the sad thing is that doctors can – Fill this out, and the, the signature of the patient is optional. So, literally, think about the words: "physician order for life-sustaining treatment." It's a physician order, and in many cases, it's optional for the patient to sign it. Uh, this is terribly dangerous. It's putting the power of your life, your death, in the hands of someone else. And you and, know, I and- think I think it. I think it
0: I want go you to ahead, go yeah. back to that for a minute because because you're using you're saying that the physician's order. I want the audience to know this is the same thing that is that you hear called a pulsed. When you're in the hospital, they may ask you to sign this pulsed agreement, and they just kind of shove it under your face. And it typically, from what I understand, it's a bright pink or bright orange form. And if they give it to you and want you to sign it, what you're doing, and this is what Dr. Toffler is telling you, you are giving the doctor all of the rights to make the decisions for you. You no longer make them, and your proxy is not making them. A doctor is determining what's going to happen to you. Um, and, and as simple as something as, um, because now it's very prevalent, you know, there are people that are for vaccine, the jab. So some people are not for it. Uh, you know i'm I'm okay, your body, your choice, do whatever you want to do It's not about that. The point is if you are in a hospital and you sign that post form, if they come in there and they know you have not had your vaccine, a flu vaccine, a covid vaccine uh, anthrax, whatever it is, that you have just given them permission to do whatever they want to do with you. It's important yeah, I think you don't that. That. they yeah.
1: They're- Marcia, there are a couple of clarifying points I want to say. Okay. The, the form itself is The form itself is not inherently unethical. Uh, you know, in the last week of my late wife's life, um, we went ahead and made her DNR because we knew all of the variables, uh, because there was no point in um, trying to extend her life at that point like we had done for the previous five and a half years. And those right. five and a half years were a blessing to me, to my seven children, and that was – a great thing, and that, how can I say that? Well, she had she had a endometrial she had a cancer, a leiomyosarcoma. Of the uterus, it's a rare cancer. Didn't have a lot of treatment options. Some of the things she took did extend her life a little bit. But the reality is, when you know, we all know we're terminal. By the way, this is an interesting concept here. Supposedly, this is for the terminal people, and it's already leaked out. Like I said, with Kate Cheney, she wasn't terminal. She wasn't dying. Without treatment, she might have died. But Mm -hmm. that would have been withheld from her had there been a different doctor than my colleague, Dr. Stevens. But with cases like my my late wife, I did not label her DNR. I did not fill out a false form saying don't do things because there really is a negative halo if you do. There's no question, but study after study, if you're labeled DNR, you have fewer admissions to the ICU. You have fewer transfusions with blood products if you might benefit from them. You have fewer antibiotics given to you. You have less trips to the hospital or ER if you're in a a residential care facility. And so DNR has got a negative connotation for doctors and their thinking. It's proven with studies where the only thing they change with a scenario in terms of what the doctor orders or does is label the person DNR, and they get all all those things here. I could not find a single study that showed there was equal care when a person was labeled um, you, you know, when the paper was labeled DNR, and so that 's one thing. The other thing is that i don 't want to say that a post couldn 't reflect the wishes of the patient i 'm just simply saying that, and it does actually have a form on most of them on the back of it who 's going to be in your designated uh, power of attorney and that 's what i 'm actually in favor of. I want people to designate who can speak for you. if God forbid you can 't speak for yourself that 's all you need you don 't need a 22 page booklet. If I if I have a booklet produced by the state in my in my office, when I hand it to the patient, I say, look, only thing I care about is this part where you designate who's going to speak for you, if you can't speak for yourself, and who's the backup to that person if we can't get a hold of them, and who's the backup to that person, and so in my case, I have seven kids, I've picked three of them, and I put them down in order, uh, in terms of who I want. To be the decision-maker if my, if my kids are squabbling about what to do with me if I can't speak mm-hmm. for myself. And, and that allows all of the different circumstances to be taken into account. Because, by golly, they say, I don't want to have intubation. Well, every time you have an ap- appendectomy, you know, you get intubated, unless they do it under their local. And the, and the reality is that this is a, this is a standard care for a, a routine surgery, a bunionectomy. You know, people get intubated. So this is not some extraordinary care. So that's the point that needs to be decided because at some point it is okay to say, you know, this is checkmate, like with my late wife in the last week of her life. We we knew there was no other options, and we had to just do our best to control pain with, with appropriate doses of, of medications that, that are life-giving. These are not dangerous drugs if they're used appropriately. And, in fact, I, I confess, I'm a doctor. I've been a doctor at the time when she died for – well over 25, 30 years, I guess maybe 35 even at the time she died. And And the reality is that what what I needed was the confidence to give more pain medication. And when she had acute shortness of breath from uh, air trapping in her lungs, we, we actually got admitted to the ICU because the doctors in the ER didn't feel comfortable giving her transfusion when she was really anemic. And so they wanted us to go to the ICU. We go to the ICU And to make the story short, when we gave her blood, it didn't help. When we gave her more oxygen, it didn't help. Again, it's an air-trapping situation. But the nurse, the one-on-one nursing in the ICU, was more aggressive with giving her morphine than I had been comfortable doing at home with my own wife. And so with that, it caused her to relax. She didn't need as much oxygen, and so she did fine with less oxygen by taking a little higher dose of morphine or a morphine equivalent like oxycodone. So the data shows that if you use pain medication like morphine or oxycodone appropriately, you actually live longer. It's not a lethal drug, even though it's been used in, uh, over years, decades now, as part of the cocktail for, for deadly drugs. But I want to encourage people not to think of the drug as inappropriate to use because it's it's i once heard a hospice nurse and this is a good hospice nurse who was in the in the line of dame Seisley saunders who wanted people to live well until they died naturally well this nurse from eugene was the star of the first 60 minutes show i was on because she said to morley safer god rest his soul he she said you know morphine is like god's gift to the dying and so you you see there are really good people like that ICU nurse one-on-one with my wife who was appropriately using morphine and helped my wife have the most comfortable days in the last week of her life. And there are people like that wonderful uh, hospice nurse in Eugene who was on 60 Minutes who basically said to Morley Safer, you know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but, uh, but it's not that bad when people get good hospice care. The problem now is that since some hospices have been corrupted, some hospices, as you said, Marcia, are admitting people uh, before their time, so to speak, in order to get right. more people on the rolls. And then the odd thing about the billing and, and the payment for hospice is that, again, like Kaiser, they don't want to have you going to the hospital even when it might be appropriate. They don't want you to have interventions uh, because they're, they're, they're supposedly giving you comfort until you die. Well, people who are on their way out uh, can get acute illnesses as well. I'm mean, going to give you an example with my late wife. At one point, her metastatic disease was in her, was in her thorax, the, the thoracic vertebrae, and one of the vertebrae actually collapsed from a metastatic lesion. Uh, the strength in the bone was gone. It caused exquisite pain with pushing on her nerves. Now, the death movement would say, well, there's nothing you can do here now. This is not a, you're going to die in a few months anyhow, so uh, we're not going to do operation. Well. Fortunately, we didn't have doctors like that. We actually had one that got creative. He did what's called palliative surgery. They stabilized her spine. Uh, he was smart enough to ask her, what do you want from me? I mean, you know, I can't cure the cancer, essentially, but I, I want to help you. And she said, I want to see my, gra- my son graduate. And so literally two weeks before she died, she was able to go on a plane. Uh, to Dallas, Texas, and see my son, who was at the University of Dallas at the time, graduate. It was a tremendous gift of extending her life and letting her live it fully until she died naturally at home in our bed. Um, And again, we we were in the ICU one week before for less than 24 hours where I learned as a doctor how to better use pain management with my own wife. And so from a, a skilled ICU nurse, and so, you know, that, that's what we want for hospice care is a team of people, all of whom collaborate to give you the best care possible. And it doesn't mean that any drugs are off the table, even though they're corruptly being used by the death movement as part of the deadly cocktail to kill people. And, again, just as I said in the latest report from the Oregon Health Authority, uh, there are people that even with their research, they're literally doing research to figure out which drugs uh, will be the most likely to end in a a successful suicide, I'm sorry, uh, so-called death with dignity, um, a medical yeah. aid in dying. I mean, these euphemisms right. are, are critical to the death movement because they know with polls that when you ask people about, do you believe in medical aid in dying? Well, you know, I believe in medically aiding the dying. That, that's, that's a lot of what I, I do at times when, when people end up with, terminal illnesses that mean that they're going to die in the next uh, three months, six months, a year, two years. I, I don't know. That's what we do. But euphemisms drive this because you want to change the way people view. So Bernard Nathanson, who was the father of legalized abortion in the, in the country, he personally did forty to 70,000 abortions. I'll never forget what he said once in a talk I went to in Washington State. He said all social engineering is preceded by verbal engineering. So if you want to change the culture away from its consistent ethic in the house of medicine where no doctors never involved in actively killing someone. And that was only 27 years ago, for heaven's sakes. 27 years ago in the United States, this was totally, not only illegal, it was unethical. In fact, think of this. About 10 years before that, there were a couple of anesthesiologists in California who were going to go help the prison system with how to make sure they did it right with respect to capital punishment in the state of California. And the entire society of anesthesiologists was just appalled at this and chastised these two doctors, and they changed their mind based on the peer pressure of a consistent ethic within the the House of Medicine in the discipline of anesthesiologists. No, doctors cannot do this. It's unethical to participate in capital punishment and helping the state to kill people, even the cooperation in helping and consulting was considered unethical. See how far But we've then come you have somebody like
0: do it, but you have somebody do it who has absolutely no clue. well
1: this That's is it. this is the reality that, uh, that, that, that right now, uh, in answer to that question, I say, you know if society wants to do this. In other words, I am a minority, and you, Marsha, are a minority and don't believe the doctors should do this. Somebody else outside of the House of Medicine should be doing this, just like you have a lawyer for the defense, you have a lawyer for the prosecution. You do not have the same person trying to, to hold both roles. So if I were going to pick someone, and, again, I'm not picking on, on anybody because I'm upset with them. I'm just simply saying veterinarians have a lot more skill at this. They've been formally taught about how to put down small and large animals, because basically we do treat, thankfully, animals different than, than humans. There is a difference. Even though I love dogs, I love cats, uh, the, the reality is that uh, I lost my dog just uh, 14 years old who, who couldn't move anymore. He was literally paralyzed. And so the, that was the way we treated Now. Dogs don't have philosophical conversations like you and I and audience are listening to this or having. And so, yes, there is a difference between animals. Again, I'm not here to debate animal lovers or the like. I love animals, but I also see the difference between you and me, babies that are unborn. I, I see the difference across the entire life spectrum. In fact, I have a very consistent ethic. I have the belief that all human life is inherently valuable, whether it's disabled whether it is labeled terminal, uh, whether it's old or young. And I, I, I sometimes I've done this before. I've asked a reporter who's interviewed me, is there some part of the human family you don't think valuable? And they, to a person, they never answer the question because they, they, they're not interested in really having a, an honest discussion where we realize the bigotry and bias inherent in the paradigm of some lives are worth, uh, worth living and others aren't. I mean, the very fact that you would make this for six months is, is, uh, is arbitrary. It's subjectively negative against people who have less time statistically to live. And there's a couple comments I'd make about that. I, as a doctor, never got a crystal ball reading course. I have been wrong about how long people live by years and so right. have all of my co- colleagues. Everybody has an anecdote where somebody was told they have three months to live and that person's alive and well 10 years later. And that's, that's one aspect of this, this thing is it, just uh, wrong. And then the other aspect is what makes three months, six months, a year, correct? In fact, it was Kevorkian who was killing people in the back of his Volkswagen van with a, with a jury rigged uh, death machine that uh, people and, he killed almost 130 people and never was prosecuted until finally on 60 minutes at same show, uh, he did a snuff murder, essentially. He was the one that pushed the IV injection of the deadly drug. And that was what got him in jail. And so he, but he, Kevorkian, who was a promoter of this, who was, who was a unemployed pathologist who had no patient care experience, set up his death machine, But he said, why should it be limited to people with six months to live? If somebody has six years to live with pain or suffering or some other kind of disease that they don't want to have, shouldn't they have more right to assisted suicide? Or euthanasia like he did in his final victim? And the answer is yes, from a logical point of view, that's true. So was right. I I tried to make that point on the – first 60-minute show, and I, I brought up that very point that I just made, and Morley said, I, I don't want to talk about Kevorkian. He's a kooky. He's a I said, no, he's not. He's very consistent. His logic is very consistent. I said, Morley, and I, I made the case that I just made. I said, he's consistent that people who want this should have that choice. He only cares about autonomy. I said, Morley, you're the one who's inconsistent and is a little bit uh, illogical cookie. about this. He's not. He's He's totally logical. You, Morley, are the one who's making an arbitrary distinction between people who are predicted to have less, less life. By the way, my late wife was told that she had three to nine months to live, and as I already said, we were blessed with five and a half years. Why do I say blessed when it was so difficult at times? Because when you know that the person you love only has a limited amount of time, it changes everything. And so I don't think we had but one argument in the last five and a half years of our life. And that was a very different frequency of arguments than we had in the first 35 years of our life together as a married couple. And so that's a blessing, that you realize how special every moment is. And we could do that right now, even though you're not labeled terminal. But the point is that the human condition is such that we don't necessarily recognize the specialness of every moment. The specialness of you inviting me to be on this program and share my perspectives after living on God's green earth into my eighth decade. So this is, this, is a, uh, this is a special moment. And I hope that there's great fruit born of people rethinking this utilitarian way of looking at other people's lives.
0: Well, and I think it comes down to you know, what you were saying earlier. You are either a pro-life person or you're not. I, I can't distinguish that you know, that this person has more right to live than that person does and that because a person is older or because a person is handicapped or disabled in some way that their life is less valuable. I think you're either pro-life or you don't care or that person's life doesn't matter. To me, all life matters. It's all important, you know, which is why I do the program. Um, I wanted to go back to something you were talking about earlier too when you were talking about your wife, Um, and losing her, you were aware of what morphine did to a point, but when the other nurse, you know, when she pointed out that, you know, it will help her breathe easier, and it isn't that morphine won't help somebody breathe easier. Now, they use that with hospice, and they say, oh, well, they'll breathe easier. This will make her help, you know, help her breathe easier. The problem is the dosage that they give and the frequency in which they give it. And it's a matter of... Right, you're absolutely right,
1: Marsha. I mean, the point is is this. There is a recommended way to give a drug like that. You give a small dose to see if it helps, because sometimes even a milligram is helpful. And it will not kill anyone. It's one of the safest drugs around if you start low and go slow. What's the Mm -hmm. fastest you should increase it? about 50% of the previous dose that did not work. If the dose worked, there is no reason, I repeat, no reason to increase the dose. And this right. is where... And you don't many need to give offices, it more
0: frequently.
1: Exactly, both the dose and the frequency. You're right. right. The person's asleep. They're not in distress. You do not give morphine then. Now, right. if you know you're about to do a dressing change or something like that in some area that's sore, giving it when they're not necessarily in pain ahead of time so they have time to take action so the dressing change is better, that's, again, that's an appropriate use of the morphine. And you're using the same dose that you already figured out really helps with the dressing change. This is the way medicines work. I want you to know that when people are doing assisted suicide with morphine being one of five different deadly drugs, they're giving somewhere between 200 and 400 times the normal dose of that medication. I repeat, 200 to 400 times the starting dose of these medications. The medications are often diazepam. It's a, it's a muscle relaxant. It's a tranquilizer, an anti-anxiety agent. It is uh, digoxin, which is a drug that we don't use a lot anymore because they're better heart medications. But we used to give 0. 0.125, 0. 0.25 milligrams a fraction of a milligram, they're giving as much as 100 milligrams, 400 times uh, the the, the dose that I would normally give to somebody who is a big person, 400 times. It's terribly cardiac toxic. We used to test levels of digoxin to be sure we weren't making somebody toxic because we didn't want to inadvertently kill them. They're giving hundreds of times more of amitriptyline, which is another drug. And they give over 100 or 200 times more of the starting dose of morphine. And this is what you were saying also with hospice nurses, some of whom think I've got to have a pain medication on order for this person. And this is a true story. I, I heard it from one of my good friends, a 30-year friend who's a hospice nurse. She's signing off on the shift, and she asked my friend uh, what he, he have on order for pain. And she says, you didn't have anything on order. He's not in pain. She gets mad at this friend of mine who's the hospice nurse going off shift because there's no pain medicine. She calls up the doctor. She has the same request that she wants an order for pain medication. The doctor says, well, what pain is she in? And she replies, she's not in pain, but I want to have it. He says, I'm not ordering anything if she's not in pain. And so this is, this is the mentality of it. It's almost like you have an understaffed unit, with a dozen people, one or two nurses. And so you've got people who sometimes get confused in the middle of the night, and they want to have something that controls that person who otherwise is a nuisance for them. And so you literally have people... Yeah, a chemical restraint is exactly right, which should only be used when all other approaches fail, including sitting by the bedside. So then Mm -hmm. you say, well, I don't have the nursing staff. Society should be looking at that situation. Why do you allow a coverage like one nurse for 12 people? Well, the reason is because it's too costly and have an appropriate number. So, again, there are wonderful hospices out there. There are wonderful care facilities that are trying to do a good job. And and just as a broad brush, when I was on a committee that looked at abuses in hospice and in palliative care, and that was the charge of this subcommittee, of a larger committee that looked at, palliative care and and hospice care overall. And we worked for over a year, almost two years on this topic. And one of the things we found with all the published studies was in general, the hospices that did better with respect to giving balanced care, appropriate care, were non-profits. The for-profit hospices, again, I'm not condemning all of them, but I'm saying you then have an inherent conflict of interest. If you want to make a profit, If you want to support your shareholders, not your patients, then you've got to pull to try to keep costs down. And if you're a nonprofit, it becomes less of an issue. Now, whether you're a nonprofit or profit, you've got to have enough income to maintain yourself so that you can continue to provide care. But you can see what I'm saying, that what turned out to be true in terms of quality measures, in terms of crossing government policies that shouldn't have been crossed, it was clearly the nonprofits that did better in terms of not having as many, as many strikes against them with government reviews and other reviews on quality measures with satisfaction scores from the, the clients and families that were involved with their care. And so just having nonprofit as a, as a representation of what you are is at least one indicator. Again, it's only an indicator. It doesn't mean you can't have problems no matter what organization or system you have, because uh, just like there are a million doctors in the country, roughly, I'm one of the million. And it is not everybody that has the mentality that I'm trying to share and striving to live uh, with my own practice. And I, and I do have an active practice. I, I'm, I'm seeing people about half the time now as a retired doctor who has started a practice that's called Holy Family Catholic Clinic in south of the major city of Portland in West Lynn, It's a suburb of, uh, of the People's Republic of Portland. So the, uh, the reality is that uh, I'm, I'm trying to live these out, and part of what we are is as a nonprofit, again, we set up ourselves as a nonprofit, so money would be as little factor as possible, and we have people who do it to us, so we can give care to people who have insurance, who have no insurance, who have bad-paying insurance, like Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know the, the the care that's covering uh, people who don't have third-party coverage, and so we're doing all of that, and we're glad to do it. And and because it's uh, it's nonprofit, I'm not pressured to try to turn out things to do a lot of procedures that bring income, and so it, it makes it easier for me to follow the ethics that I'd like to follow, and I don't have any pressure to churn out patients. And these are the kinds of things you'd like to have in your system. Build it in. So that there is no pressure, it's a little bit like I guess the original thinking with the Mayo Clinic with the Mayo Brothers that you, you wouldn't you wouldn't turn people away, you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, you would give the best possible care. Or there's a, a care for the sick hospital in uh, in Italy. The same thing was started, I think, by Padre Pio and the uh, famous saint Padre Pio, and and he he wanted this care for the sick to be independent of how how difficult it was or how terminal they were in the sense of statistical risk for death. Because, again, you know, that's a better way to put it, because we all are terminal, and this is something that, that is a reality. So the whole notion of this dichotomizing care and treating people is really biased and bigoted.
0: Well, it absolutely is, because you're de- deciding who lives and who dies, Right. And that should never Absolutely. be the case of doing that.
1: Right.
0: So but you know you said you're um in Portland, north or south I am. of Portland?
1: Yeah, it's a little bit south of Portland. It's actually still considered Portland. The Clackamas County is the county uh Portland's in Multnomah County and there's Clackamas uh County and, and Beaverton is uh out to the west of the Portland proper. So it's it's uh you know, it's about Twelve miles south of center city
0: and do you still take new clients
1: oh absolutely
0: okay we're i, just, uh, we're in I mean i know phase. of we're one of our a, yeah i know of you know a couple of people that are in our group um i belong to a facebook group murdered by hospice and we have um, a couple of there that are they're from oregon so i'm definitely going to tell them about yeah you we're and glad to help we
1: but we're could. we're, we're yeah, we do telehealth visits and, uh, you know, with COVID, there was even the capacity to certain states allow doctors who aren't even licensed in the state to take care of them. I don't know if that's still true, but the reality is that I've taken care of people in other states, even I'm licensed in Washington state and in Oregon, uh, as far as formal licensing. And, you know, the, the, the reality is we're, we're trying to do our best to bring back the kind of care that, uh, is personalized, individualized and doing it with Concern for ethical boundaries, so we we don't do things that, as a Catholic practice, they're at odds with the ethical and religious directives of the, the Catholic Church, the U.S. Congress, U.S. United States Congress of uh, Bishops, the USCCB, and this is uh, this is important. It's a safeguard for people. They know that we don't do assisted suicide, we don't do abortions, we don't do sex change operations, we don't we don't cleave kids from their parents so we can talk to the kids in secret about how they can do the wrong thing safely. Uh, These are all misguided notions that have crept into medicine that are are just dangerous. And I think there's finally a backlash from parents recognizing how misguided it is that, uh, you know, there was a man running for governor who thought parents should have no say in what they're taught in schools. uh, Government schools are going to tell them. And thank God there was a backlash against uh, a Uh, a bigoted, bias. Yeah, it was in Virginia. It was in Virginia absolutely right. and, and it's what? it's very encouraging, yeah
0: he was overthrown by by youngkin who is now in charge of Virginia, and I couldn't be happier because of that so well, absolutely, absolutely. And, and
1: encouraging, it wasn't just Virginia that went uh deeply uh in a different direction than it historically had recently, but also uh San Francisco there were three school board members who uh who were Woke and they wanted to do the same kinds of things, and they got ousted three to one. Even in deeply blue San Francisco, parents have had enough of school right. board admitted elit- elitists thinking they know better about what to train children with. So we believe in families. We believe in supporting families. We believe families are the basic building block of society, and our practice is centered around those principles. And, the, and you throw those principles out at your, at your peril. These are time-tested and all cross-cultures, you know, in the height of slavery, eighty-five percent of black families were intact, and now in our nation's capital, eighty-five uh, percent of babies born, even as late or as early as is the mid '90s, eighty-five percent were born to single parents. Now, you say, well, what difference does that matter? You know, we we anybody can raise children, a, a community can. Well, let's see. Of the people in prison, based on a Texas study. 80 plus percent, I think it was actually 85% of the males in prison, whether they're black, white, green, yellow, purple, came from fatherless homes. What does it tell you? There is a different role intrinsic in the human condition for fathers and mothers. When fathers are missing, it is a correlate, an absolute strong correlate with what destroys not only families, but society. And so it, it i'm just talking anthropology here i'm not talking about uh opinions about sex i'm talking anthropology so if you want to correct the problems with our society with respect to families then do things to encourage fathers to stay with their the mother the, the right. mother who father who 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 bore their child and and if that doesn't happen you are swimming upstream in terms of risk factors. And again, I'm not criticizing single parents, mothers in particular, uh, who are heroes. They're heroines, if you will, uh, in having to deal with difficult circumstances. They should be celebrated. They should be given awards. But you don't want that as the default. That's the circumstances where someone gets killed or unfortunately divorces or walks away from a a live-in marriage or live-in situation. It's not even a marriage. And so you you throw these things out at your peril. These are like throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that's what I think our society's done. And if you have people who are getting support from both parents, they're just at lower risk of going to prison for things like violence against other humans. And that that is an important issue. So I'm just talking anthropology here. And uh you well, know people if, can in disagree.
0: Addition... No, and I agree with you. But in addition to that, you also have the parent, and whether it's a single parent, a mom, a dad, or a family, you have the parent that wants to be a friend to their child instead of being a parent to the child. And so discipline has been thrown out the window, whether it's because you have a latchkey child because, you know, both parents work or if it is a single parent that's working, but the discipline has been thrown out, so people are not being given the discipline of what's the difference between right and wrong, and we see that coming up into society, that people don't know the difference between right and wrong, which is, to me, the situation when you have a hospice-type situation where a nurse comes in and finds nothing wrong with euthanizing a person that they determine their life is not worth living, and they go to bed that night, they get up the next morning, they go back in, they do it again. And so we are creating a society of people that don't have ethics and morals, and they they don't have compassion for people. And you know you see well, it with the you, grab and and stealing and all this. They have no compassion for that store owner, and they have no respect for authority.
1: Well, you're you're absolutely right, uh, and I, I think that the the values we get are caught from the modeling of those values by your parents. It's the chief; they're the chief educators of every human that comes into the world. You don't come in without parents, and you. You have either parents that have been given those values themselves, the Judeo-Christian values that held our society together for hundreds of years, or you just throw all of that out. You have an active disdain for those Judeo-Christian values, which has happened. Well, that's just your religion. That's just your belief. I, my truth is this way. Well, you know, you're entitled to your opinion, but you're not entitled to your facts. And the facts are that instilling those values in people are indeed what keep us safe from all of the things you just described, the snatch and grab, the random killing, the random punching of somebody, the random pushing somebody onto subway tracks, uh, the, the decision that a leader of a country made to go blow up uh, maternity hospitals in order to have a land grab. However, whatever situation happened in the past, there is no justification for killing innocent people to get to your, your goal. And that, doesn't, that applies equally equally to a communist country, to a country run by oligarchs, the Russian mafia, and also to the United States uh, whether it's uh, run by people who have a party that wants to grab power and are more interested in power for themselves than they are in the American people and the people they serve. I mean, that whole right. idea of serving people versus uh, basically uh, captivating people and, and having control over people, is one of those principles that's hugely at risk. I mean, the whole notion of calling somebody a public servant when they're actually telling you what you can and can't do—they're hardly serving me. They're—they're they're absolutely uh, trying to be a, a dictator, an authoritarian figure, and and those—that's what our founding fathers uh, railed against was this whole notion of of having people control their lives. And uh, and unfortunately, we now have a whole group of people who believe that the government has better decision making not only of the parents, but of the society as a whole.
0: That's true, and it comes down to money and power, and that becomes yep. more important than human life. Yep, and it that's does. And just, the, and that that's, is what it is. And if you do not educate yourself and you look at both sides of the story, you can't just say, well, you know, and I'll t- take it back to hospice here, but you can't just say hospice has always been a compassionate you know, organization. Therefore, that it is. Um, you know, we're going to teach this in our school because this is what we believe we're going to do. You know, you're going to, uh, you know, I don't know, wear a mask on your face because we say so. You have to look at both sides of the story and make a decision based on your knowledge. And if you don't have that knowledge because you haven't done the research, then you can't make a decision on it. Somebody else is making your decision and you have to live with that. And sometimes living with that cost people their life and their livelihood. Well,
1: absolutely, you're right. And the whole issue is that one time in in medicine, we were able to have point counterpoint. In fact, I I ran the largest course in the medical school for 15 years. Um, was principles of clinical medicine and I had to fight to get a topic called Controversies in Medicine as a regular feature of that course. So people from both sides, of something as simple, do you allow pharmaceutical representatives in your office because you might be conflicting your, yourself with a corruption of going for something that's glitzy and advertised versus what's just as effective and a lot cheaper. So that was an interesting discussion. But I really had to fight to get something about abortion in there because already it was taboo to talk about it. And that was the beginning signs of controlled speech in the university. But I managed, by the grace of God, to get that in there. So you not only had one person trying to present both sides, which is impossible because everyone has a bias about this, including myself. And so uh, we got people to speak in their voice on each side. And it became one of the most instructive things, not just for students, but with the small groups afterward with faculty leaders, we had to tell the faculty leaders not to say anything one way or other. They could not criticize people for having an opposing point of view. And at times I had to replace the faculty member because they could not do that. They could not allow students to uh, be themselves without being critical of people holding a different view. Uh, But still we were able to do it. And we had it for abortion. We had it for assisted suicide. And that was a healthy university environment. Today it's not possible. I'm not at the university, largely because at one time, the diversity that I represented, even as a minority, was welcome. In fact, the department chair was even proud of it. Now we have a woke culture. I'm clearly with the views that I've already shared on this program, uh, unwoke, if you will. I am awake, but I'm not woke. The woke is, a uh, to me now, a pejorative term of people who believe that their way or the, it's my way or the highway and if you right. say something contrary to my narrative, you are hateful, you're a bigot, you're a phobe this, a phobe that, and this is unbelievable. This is the United States. This is not supposed to be China. It's not supposed to be Russia, where you're – if you have the wrong point of view, from the point of view of the prevailing power, the prevailing uh, president, the, the prevailing leader, authoritating voice, um, then you're, you're canceled. Uh, or worse, I mean, in, in Canada, we just had an example with a – the prime minister just basically froze bank accounts of people who had a dissenting voice from his. And this is, this is astonishing. Uh, it, It reminds me of Reagan's phrase, it will take less than one generation to potentially lose everything that the founding fathers gave us with our declaration of independence and our constitution. One generation, you fail to study history. You fail to study that this is how, Uh, despots get into power this is how uh, national killers uh, a stalin a hitler and and now a putin comes to power is by absolute suppression a zhi in china where the people who tried to tell the truth about covid and its origins suddenly disappeared uh you even have athletes that are uh, taken this is what we're we're heading for if you don't allow free speech which is one of the fundamental principles that America used to have. So if I can't be in a university with an poison point of view, or because what I say to a patient, which is the truth based on anthropology, science, I I said things like I'm concerned about people who have sex change operations because 10 years later they have a 19-fold increased chance of suicide. That was considered hate speech. You cannot make this up. I told the truth about this. And I told the truth about the, the misguided paradigm of somebody wanting to be something else than they were genetically born with and the failure of that whole paradigm to make people happy. You know, I said this to one of my colleagues. This is very current. This is in the last year. I said that was one of the, the strikes against me with having been a full professor and an emeritus professor at Oregon Health and Science University. And that was one of the strikes against me. And and he said, Well, you know, Bill, it's funny that you say that because I've been taking care of these people wanting sex change operations for years. I've been giving the hormones to them to make that that transition. And he said, you know, in taking care of them, they weren't happy when we started and they don't seem to be any happier now that we've done this. This is out from somebody who's open-minded enough to be doing both sides. uh, And and he just simply said, when I stated the fact, uh, a scientific... Anthropologic fact about people having sex. And by the way, you know, famous people who have had this done, like uh, Caitlyn Jenner, the former Bruce Jenner, the amazing athlete, decathlon gold medal winner in the Olympics, uh, he even said this. He said, you know, it's not maybe what everybody's cut out to be. And, you know, it's, it's so, again, uh, you're being honest about it. And, and if you say these things or if you, somebody changed their mind, they want to do reparative therapy because they've gone into this this uh, paradigm and they're not happy and they want to come back. Well, that's outlawed in California. If you do that, you could have your license revoked. What happened to pro-choice? I mean, this is to me amazing. Again, what happened to science? Is it just that somebody believes this and so then it must be true? You know, well, they used to believe that. And what
0: happened to talking to someone and getting to the root cause of something before you go and do something that irreversible. You know, well, absolutely. Sometimes-
1: in fact, there was a case of Australian twins, and uh, they were both male, uh, identical twins, and one of them, in the parents having chosen to do circumcision. And again, I'm not talking for or against circumcision, but he had a he had an infection, which actually was severe and he lost his phallus. And so the, the prevailing theory at the time was it didn't matter whether you were raised as a girl or boy up until the age of two and a half. There were a couple of psychiatrists who came up with this concept. I was taught it formally in my, in my residency program. And then this natural experiment happens where they make the, the one twin with the lost phallus into a girl. And so all through growing up, he's trying to do identical things with his brother with his uh, you know the stereotypical boy uh, marching through mud puddles rolling in the mud doing whatever they do uh, playing with with guns and you know cars and and trucks and all these kinds of things but he couldn't do it because his parents were grooming him to be a girl they put him in frilly clothes he hated them he wanted to rip them off and basically he was not a girl and so mm-hmm. he's literally having to go to psychiatric sessions and all these things. He's unhappy. And basically about 12 years old, he, he, he says to his parents coming back from the psychiatrist, I want to kill myself. And finally, the parents tell him the truth about what happened. He felt relief. And they tried their best to change back because, you know, the damage is done in the sense of you, you've given him hormones. You've made him into a, quote, girl, end quote. Uh, no, he's, every cell in his body has XY chromosomes, the genes that weren't turned on. 6,000 genes are turned on in women that aren't turned on in me as a baby by the time I come out. 6,000. None of those are changed by doing cosmetic surgery on body parts or giving hormones. None of them are changed. This is, this is a science. And so for the first time, that whole paradigm that has gone on for 20 years, oh, it's, no, it's all environmental and you can raise them either way, no big deal. It was wrong, and all the people that were hurt with that paradigm, and now you've got the same kind of thing going on with people supposedly. And I literally was on a Congress of Delegates call uh, for the American Academy of Family Physicians, and there were people on the call who were involved with these sex change things saying there's no difference between the athletic ability of these men becoming women, uh, and that they were saying this with a straight face. They absolutely convinced themselves of this. And then you see every single high school record in Massachusetts by, is now being held by a transgender uh, be, you know, male becoming a female, all the records. And if you care about women, what has this done to women's sports across the country? It's decimated it in a way that is undermining the, the beautiful uh, attempt that we made to give the same parity to girls and women to have athletic ability uh, fostered by schools that had equal support for women's athletics as they do for male athletics, all of that's now gone out the window. As you see a university of Pennsylvania, uh, swimming athlete beating other women because he's a man with broad shoulders and the underlying muscular structure that happened for the first 18, 20 years of his life. And he's flying past women who have skilled athletes in their own right, but they, they're handicapped by a man who's actually masquerading as a woman. And I don't care right. what you call them, and I don't care what pronoun you use. The facts are right there. And, and I couldn't believe my colleagues were trying to say, that. don't believe your lying eyes. Uh, how could you possibly have every school record in the state of Massachusetts owned now by a transgender man in these uh, performance sports and, and, and say that, oh, that's, that's just because he's really training hard? No, I'm I am sorry. I do
0: believe no, my, my a, eyes, you know. no, there is a physical there is a physical difference between men and women and it, you know it always has been and no matter what people say today it will be. And you just can't and, and, change get determined to change that.
1: And and, and and viva the difference. I mean this is this from my point of view as a as a Catholic this is God's design. There's this complementary uh, equal but not identical We are equal in God's eyes, no question about it. But you have talents and abilities that I don't have, and I can try to to emulate those talents, but there are things that are just inherently a part of womanhood that I could never have. And the whole notion, they're aborting the language again. Yeah, it's crazy, but and, you know, this is the kind of mentality that, that it gets us in the hospice where it basically is, is uh, we, we may in one way be far afield from it. In another way, we're actually on target because this whole mentality of uh, I can do whatever I want with my life uh, is led to dangers because the government now, since that's the case and the government decides the exigencies are what they are, we, we now can have control over your life.
0: Right, well, and they they do, and it comes down to um a financial decision because with Medicare and Medicaid, they do not want to pay out more money. It's like you said earlier if if I do this surgery on you, it's going to cost more money, and we don't want to do that, so therefore we're going to bring you in, giving you the toxic drug cocktail is not going to cost that much, and it's you know three, ten days. So, like, um, someone was talking to me uh, last week, and he had stated that his mother, he thought they I was talking to him about, you know, what hospice does, right? And he said that he thought something had happened with his mother because they thought she was dying, she was in hospice, she didn't have anything to drink or eat for three weeks, and it took her three weeks to die. And I said, I... You know, a person typically can live 10 days without food and three days without water. But he said they must have done something, you know, to keep her alive because she went three weeks without food and three weeks without water. And I said, are they giving her IV with fluids? And he said no. So that's really not physically possible,
1: right? I think I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Well, I I wouldn't adhere to uh, the standards of the three days and four days. One, everybody's an individual. Uh, Maximilian Kolbe, uh lived for over ten days in the death um, chamber that they put him and ten other, pri- nine other prisoners in, in uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, he took the no place of another prisoner. No water, no food. Prisoner. That's correct. And what's more, they had okay. to kill him with carbolic acid injected in his vein. So that's a living case. Terry Schiavo got nothing for two weeks. Um So okay. and so. So the reality is that uh, we're individuals. It depends on what your baseline is when you start. And so there is, I would not try to make predictions like that. There might be people okay. who only live three days. I mean, the, the very stress can be part of it. On the other hand, I also want to make a point, since you brought that up, is that there are times, it's not common, but it happened with my own dad, where he had a feeding tube that was put in the wrong place uh, when it was replaced. It had gotten pulled out. The track was not mature. They didn't check. For placement, and So the feeding tube was actually in his abdomen, not in his stomach. So they dumped a couple liters of tube feeding into my poor dad's abdomen, and he never really recovered from that. In fact, they tried to feed him through the feeding tube after it had been replaced in the right place. It leaked in his abdomen, so it was continuing to cause havoc. And so he became more and more debilitated, less and less of a surgical candidate because the surgery could kill him. You couldn't feed him that way. We tried to feed him intravenously because that was his wish. If there was a 2% chance for my dad, he would go for it. That was his mentality. It was exactly the opposite of my mother who said, why doesn't God take me and wanted to be gone with her debilities um, uh, even before she got terminally sick in the sense of the last few weeks or months of her life. But my dad had been Part of World War ii Korea, Vietnam. He was a brigadier general when he retired in Germany as division artillery commander. I knew that he wanted to go for it, so we tried. But feed him intravenously, then the, the yeast infection that he had systemically flourished. It was all that food and nutrients and the, the yeast. What got worse? So he got febrile, sick, septic. If we fed him through the stomach, it was leaking still. He couldn't sustain a different approach. He couldn't have G G-tube put down because basically he already had a hole in his stomach, and it was difficult because of his torturous esophagus. So what I'm getting at with all these details, we were a checkmate. So the best thing, if you fed him, tried to feed him orally, he would aspirate. It would go in his lungs. So in such a case, then it is ethical because any intervention you have, IV or G-tube, or uh, trying to feed him m- mouthwise you you ended up with aspiration and pneumonia pneumonitis so you you're it's essentially what i call checkmate you're you're doing your best to support him then at that point but you know well, that it, he is imminently dying and you cannot when you they cannot, did
0: that the, when they put no the g tube in was it because they were going to do surgery i mean he wasn't really old did they they or was he just he no, wasn't no, getting
1: my dad my dad my dad had advanced Parkinson's, much like the Pope. And I'd use the Pope as an example, too. Here's the the icon, 27 years of the reigning pontiff and a brilliant man who was part of the collapse of the Soviet Union, along with Reagan. He was a suave. He understood things. He was a brilliant man. He was a man for the season. He would go back and forth with Gemelli Hospital with his advanced Parkinson's. And finally, he said, I'm not going to go back to the hospital anymore. I'm just going to stay in the papal apartment. I'm going to receive the care that's possible in the home. He had decided that going to the hospital is disproportionate care. And so this is the essence of decision-making. When is an intervention, like going to the hospital, like having a feeding tube, like having a respirator, when is it life-giving and when is it disproportionate to the surrounding circumstances? This is a very difficult area for discernment. But it's exactly what family members have to make a decision. You make, and it's exactly when I I had the whole burden of that because, you know, my dad unfortunately wasn't wasn't able to think through this as clearly, and he depended on me as a doctor, and I did my best to support his wishes of trying everything possible. So literally, he was in one hospital for forty seven days, and then after this feeding tube error, medical error, he was in that hospital for fifty five days, and finally, you know, you you have to. You have to make the decision that Pope John Paul II made of, I'm not going to go back to the hospital. I'm letting nature take its course. And he died naturally with dignity at home. My dad died naturally with dignity in the hospital, surrounded by a family. And he didn't, he didn't, we didn't accelerate his death, but we accepted his death. My wife, right. in the last week of her life, when we were in that unit, I'll just finish with this story. Um, you know, I was thinking to her, well, maybe we can figure out what's going on causing the shortness of breath besides air trapping which is where the tumor blocks the air going out, but you can still get air in. And so basically, you, uh, I said, maybe you have maybe we can, do a CT. Maybe we can do a CT scan and, and see. And she says, um, I, I, I don't think it matters. And I tried to finish another sentence. He said, I don't think it matters. I'm ready. And I said, well, and I had tears in my eyes. I said, well, I'm not. And she said, I know, but we'll get you there. So I was more diff- it was more difficult for me to accept the end of her life than it was for her. she had come to realize that i 'm ready
0: she was ready, yeah, she was ready, so I'm sorry about that, but it's you know it sounds like she went her way um, best it could be expected. Uh, thank you so oh, exactly much right. um, Dr. Toffler for coming on tonight. This has been an excellent, excellent program, lots of good information. And I wanted to give people your website. It is c c e f. org. That's correct. And so we also I have appreciate a you coming for, on. We Go also ahead. have a
1: website for Holy Family Catholic Clinic, too. It's, uh, it's basically holyfamilyclinic.com. Okay. All one, all one word, www.holyfamilyclinic.com. So people okay. need to get in touch so, with us, that's the way.
0: You can reach Dr. Toffler like that, and um, there's a couple of discussions that we had that I'm going to call you back later on in the week to talk to you about a couple of other things. so um, I appreciate Great. you coming on and excellent, excellent information. Thank you very much, and Glad we'll be to talking to you soon. Okay, thank you everybody. Bye-bye. good night, have a good evening. Good night, everybody. Bye bye.